Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Athletes. My name is Michael Raziel and I am the host to the show where I get to interview Olympic athletes and hopefuls on their story and path to the Games. Today we have Noah Hoffman, a two-time cross-country Olympian. Noah is an incredible dude. He has a lot to say. It was a it was a very, very enjoyable time speaking with him. Really just learning about everything that he's done and and the Olympic mindset and everything that he needed to go through and everything he put his body through to make sure that he could go to more than one, first go to one and then go to multiple Olympic games. So Noah had a lot to say. It was a lot of fun talking to him. So sincerely hope you enjoy it. So please, without further ado, here's Noah Hoffman. All right, special guest today, Noah Hoffman, USA Cross Country Skiing. Noah was born August 1st, 1989 in Denver, Colorado. Noah began alpine skiing at the age of four, but did not take up cross country skiing until about the age of 11. He joined the Junior World Championships in 2008 and represented the United States in the World Championships since 2011. He won the 2012 US Championship title, meaning he was the best person in the country at, at cross country skiing, which is pretty cool. He won a World Cup event out in down in 2013 and he represented us in the 2014 and 2018 games so we have a two-time olympian here and he currently is attending brown university noah thanks for hanging out with us today man thanks so much for having me michael no the pleasure is all my i get to talk to olympians on essentially a daily basis now so i have an absolute blast with this unfortunately you guys have to then listen to all the questions i have so hopefully we can rock and roll with this a little bit so Noah, if you don't mind i guess starting us at the beginning back in uh somewhat snowy denver colorado getting uh, getting on those skis yeah so i growing up in colorado was the best place in the world to grow up as far as i'm concerned with access to the mountains and when i lived down in the front range in the denver area i uh had the opportunity to ski you know uh, five or six weekends a year and uh got kind of got started started to fall in love with the sport but then we moved up to the mountains as a family um when i was uh beginning third grade we uh, transitioned and all of a sudden I had the mountains right out my door instead of having them be an hour and a half drive away and that made all the difference I started skiing 50 75 days a winter and cross-country skiing all of a sudden was right there in front of me as well and that was uh, that was my introduction to cross-country skiing because all of a sudden there were trails out the door and I how could you not yeah, I mean, if they're there, you might as well use them, right? And it doesn't happen every day that you can do. I mean, I'm here in suburban New Jersey, so I don't think cross-country skiing is quite for me. So I'll let you do that. I'll keep doing what I'm doing. Um, so was there a reason that you guys moved up to the mountains? Was it because you started getting that into skiing or, or was it just a, a family event that occurred? Yeah, no, it was just a family event. My father got a job up in the mountains. And so uh, it was just a fortuitous uh, event that occurred in my life that was really uh, enabled the rest of my uh, ski career and enabled me to end up going to the Olympics, which is kind of remarkable that how those things happen. Isn't it crazy, man? There's always like this weird little event that happens that it was way, way back in time. And somehow, you know, you went off onto the correct fork, you took the right fork in the road. And heck, you're sitting here talking to me today. I guess there's worse places to be, right? Um, so that's great. So if you don't mind actually explaining cross country skiing, I mean, everyone you know, went to that went to high school pretty much knows what cross country running is, right? But I know cross country skiing is just a little bit different. So if you don't mind explaining what it is and why the heck you decided to do it. Yeah, that's a great question. Cross country skiing is a lot like cross country running in that you are, uh, it's an endurance event and you're racing on a fixed course from point to point. Often it's a loop or multiple loops, but you have a, a fixed finish line and start line. 
Um, unlike alpine skiing, where there's no chairlifts involved, there's also no metal edges on our skis, and our heels are not locked down. So we use really light skis that are almost like running shoes for snow, except for you can glide on them, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. uh, it makes it significantly faster than running, um, and we race for longer distances than most cross-country running races. But like cross-country running, there's lots of hills and downhills um, that we have to navigate, and uh, we race at the Olympics anywhere from 1500 meters up to 50 kilometers. And my distances tended to be the longer ones. I focused on, uh, my endurance with my strength rather than the speed. And so, uh, at both Olympics, I got to race in the 15 kilometer, the 30 kilometer and the 50 kilometer races, plus the distance relay, which is, uh, four people each skiing 10 kilometers. So, uh, that was, yeah. Um, what else about cross country skiing? It's, uh, oftentimes much more accessible than alpine skiing because you don't have to pay for a lift ticket. You do pay sometimes for trail fees. Sometimes they're free like bike paths, but uh, you you can go out and um, you don't have to pay per time you use it. You just go out and enjoy the trails and you can go out. Honestly, even if there's no grooming and no trails, you can just go tromp around in the, in the snow and in the powder. And that can be really fun as well. And then the last thing I'll say is that there are two different types of cross-country skiing. One is called skate skiing and the other is classic skiing. Uh, classic skiing are where your skis are parallel to each other in a track and you propel yourself forward by pushing some sticky wax that's underneath your that's on the middle of your ski into the snow pushing forward off of it and then gliding uh, on the front and back of the ski because the ski has a built-in camber to it and then skate skiing is more like ice skating where your skis are out in a v and you push off to the side and that propels you forwards and to answer the second part of the question, why mm -hmm. I got into it, the reality is that I was just better at it. Uh, when I started doing both, I found that endurance was really where my strong suit is, where my talent lied, talent was uh, to be found. And so I, you, you know, as, as is natural, I think, for most people and certainly most kids, uh, you like to do what you're good at. And if you're good at it, then you keep doing it. That is incredible, man. I mean, 50 kilometers, that's just... Wow. I mean, as a kid, I'm assuming you guys didn't go that far, right? But like, no, no, okay. you don't start doing that until you're a senior for sure, to, uh, that makes which sense. is over, over 19 years old. But the kids races are tend to be five kilometers or, or the really young kids, it's, it's one, two or three kilometers. And so they, they build you up luckily. Mm -hmm. but so 50k doesn't feel so daunting when you get to it. Yes, I, I believe that. But coming from zero, I that that just does not sound enjoyable. But thankfully, again, there's people like you on planet Earth that get to do it. I mean, how, how do you just have like a really long playlist that you listen to? I mean, what's how long is a 50k race time wise? Uh, it ranges from an hour and 45 minutes to two and a half, depending on snow conditions, depending on whether it's skate and classic and depending on the hilliness of the course. And so, wow. Uh, yeah, so you have is, to have a couple of playlists just loaded up, right? <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because uh, throughout my career, well, um, it is against the rules actually to listen to music during a race. And uh, throughout my career, I never even trained with any music. And so I would be out there for five hour training sessions uh, with no, no audio entertainment. So uh, that was part of the focus that I, uh, that I brought to my career that I felt like I needed to train the way that I raced and I didn't race with music. Uh, so I wasn't going to train with music. Practice like you play. I love that, man. And it makes sense. But I mean, I get bored after 15 minutes um, running with, with no music. So I, I commend you for five hours. That's absolutely incredible. So in 2008, I mean, what you were 19 years old, I guess, right. Or 18 years old, probably because of uh, the August birthday, but you went to the junior world championships. What was that experience like at such a young age and really being on the 
world stage at that point. Yeah, I would say that that, that championship, which was in uh, northern Italy, was really formidable in my career in that it was, it was so incredibly motivating. It was my first interaction with, with truly global level uh, cross-country skiing and what the global competition scene was like. I had previously raced in Scandinavia a little bit but against a smaller field, but this was the first time that I saw what the entire world scene looked like. And I, I found that I was able to hold my own at times and I was getting absolutely destroyed at other times. And that getting crushed uh, really motivated me to come back and, and get better and, and be one of the best in the world because I, I saw that level. It felt like it was going to be the hardest thing I'd ever done to try to get there, but it also felt like I could do it if I dedicated my entire life to it. And so I, that, that trip and that championship was just part of this long transition in my career. The nice thing about cross-country skiing in, in this country in particular is that it's really well structured so that you have, you start at the local level racing just town races, then you go race at the state level, then you go race at the national level, and then you start racing it, you know, traveling for smaller trips like the Scandinavian trip, and then you get to that world level. And that's all within the junior ranks. Then there's the same in the senior ranks. And so that's that world champion, junior world championship in Italy was part of this transition uh, where you was just one step after the other. And that was what made the whole thing achievable was that you, you had um, every goal was manageable. It wasn't like you were going to be, uh, you know, all of a sudden you got to go from just racing your local races to making the Olympic team. You start by going to the junior national championships and eventually, you know, the junior worlds and world championships. And then the Olympic team just seems like the logical next step. And yeah, making everything kind of small steps, as you were alluding to, it's bite size. You know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at yeah. a time? You know, it's one of those things you just keep going and going. I don't advocate eating elephants, but I love that saying. And I mean, it keeps saying it to myself. How do you eat a head of lettuce? I guess one bite at a time, whatever you're into, it doesn't matter. But, um, you know, it's just one of those things where if you can, as you said, the logical next step was to make it, then it, it, it makes sense at that time. Just like you were alluding to earlier, the logical next step is the 50K race. Um, you know, it doesn't mean you start out there. It means you eventually get there. So I really like how that kind of holds its, how holds its own, um, across the whole experience of, uh, cross country skiing, especially here in America. Was that event, as you said, it was incredibly motivating and you got to see yourself on the world stage against, against this competition. Was that event, the turning point where you were like, okay, maybe this is something, maybe I can make the Olympic team. Maybe I can go forward. Or was there another event earlier in your career that really propelled you onto that specific path? Yeah, it's interesting. I I don't think it was that event because at that point in 2008, I had already decided to postpone my education to focus solely on cross-country skiing. So I was already cross-country skiing full-time at that at that intersection and was doing it, you know, quote unquote professionally, although we'll talk about what that really means financially in, uh, in a little bit. But uh, it was, I had made, so I think that decision to postpone going to school and not to go race NCAA skiing and to focus on international level skiing was probably the, the time when I said, okay, I'm going to try to make a go of this and become best in the world and, and go to the Olympics, but not only go to the Olympics, I wanted to medal the Olympics and I wanted to medal at world champs and I wanted to be literally the best skier in the world. That was my goal coming out of high school. And I, uh, I I made the decision that that was a bigger priority than going to school for me, and uh, I'm so glad that I did. But I'd say that that time, which was about a year, a, uh, yeah, less than a year, I guess, before the Junior World Championships, that was the time when I'd made that decision. 
Okay. Very cool. That's good to know and good to understand. Cause yeah, I mean, if you're going to dedicate yourself to something, especially that that's what I found with a lot of Olympic athletes, that time between high school and college, that short amount of time is when you pretty much have to make that decision. And it sounds like you made it relatively quickly, even before that time came and, and you were able to just go in and do everything that you needed. So what, um, being on the world cup circuit and, and continuously having, you know, in 2011, actually, it looks like you went to the world championships. You've been on the world cup circuit. What was that like just continuing being able to travel the world, being able to obviously um, travel the world and, and get to see this competition, grow the friendships, the, the community, see what that's like. What was that like in your, your whole journey and, and making sure and propelling you to exactly, as you said, being the best gear in the world? Yeah, so the that international circuit, the World Cup, which is the season-long competition series, and then the World Championships, which happens every odd year, uh, which is the major championships of the season, Those, that's the place where everybody wants to be racing. That's the highest level of racing in the world. That's the one that we all dream about being on. And so in 2010-11, when I made the transition to full-time World Cup skiing and, and then head to the World Championships in 2011 for the first time, that was, that was like, okay. Now I've made it to the place that I want to make it to. The next step is actually succeeding at this level. And so that was a, uh, yeah, I mean, that was a dream come true to be there and then to spend almost 10 years or I guess eight years, seven years on that circuit and race full-time World Cups um, November through March every year, traveling different country every week, racing was just an absolutely incredible experience. As you mentioned, the friendships that I, that you build being on the road with your, not only your teammates, but your competitors week after week, season after season is that I mean, they're going to be relationships that I maintain for my entire life. And I'm it's the best part about what I will take most from my career. That is absolutely fantastic. I love the way you say that. It's so genuine and understanding and really being able to push forward that. So I uh, I spoke to you before uh, a little bit. I was able to interview a cross-country skier already, Rosie Brennan. If you haven't listened to that one, please go back and listen to that one now. It's just a little shameless plug. But um, tell us a little bit about what the, the, the comparison, I guess, or, or lack thereof, comparison between the North American uh, cross-country skiing events versus some of these European and Russian cross-country skiing events. Yeah, so Rosie is one of those people that you know I got to know like family. I would consider her like a sister of mine. We spent you know months and months living in hotel rooms together, and she's uh, she's somebody that I love dearly. And I'm so glad you had the opportunity to talk to her. And I know that she's talked on this a little bit too. But it is it is a stark contrast that is finally we're starting to see change a little bit between how cross country skiing is viewed in Europe and in this country. Um, especially in a country like Norway, where it is their national sport and the cross-country skiers are as big as the NFL players are around here. They can't go to the grocery store without being bombarded by autograph requests. It is something to behold. And, and when we show up at these races, and for instance, my first world championships was in 2011 in Oslo. And for the 50 kilometer race at that event, we had 125,000 people on course. And it was an 8.3 kilometer lap that we did six times. And there were six people deep the entire five miles around this track. And it was the loudest event that I've ever been in. My eardrums were ringing for days after that racing that. Uh, and it was, it was a, there was people out in the snow spending the night out there to be able to be, get a close view. There were, uh, campfires going all over. In fact, one of my 
best memories or best is being relative is choking on the camp smoke as I was racing on this on the uh, smoke from the fire because it was overwhelming in places how the there were uh, there were so many people and so many smells and so much noise it was just an experience I will never forget and so that's what you get in Europe that we don't quite have in this country uh, but we are having our first World Cup event in this country in 2019 uh, it's going to be in the Twin Cities and it's the first one since 2001 and i believe that we're going to we're going to get the types of types of crowds that they get in europe because people are starting uh, especially with my teammate Jesse Diggins who is becoming one of the best skiers in the world just won the first gold medal ever for us cross country skiing along with my other teammate Keegan Randall and there the excitement is finally building around cross country skiing in this country and it's so wonderful and i tell you that not just because i'm invested in the sport personally but it's wonderful because cross country skiing is a sport that almost uh, more than any other promotes full body health promotes fitness promotes camaraderie promotes teamwork and has so few negative aspects there aren't concussions that you don't generally don't see a lot of injuries and illness it is a sport that is beneficial to people at all ability levels not just olympians and so i think that having a sport like that grow in this country would be a wonderful thing not just for olympic athletes I, that's completely true. Um, I agree with everything. Obviously, you know the sport. And another thing um, that you mentioned earlier that I'll just bring up again is very accessible. I mean, if you live anywhere pretty much that gets snow, you can go out and, and romp around, as you said before, right? So it's like, you know, if it's if anybody can do it and the cost and the barrier to entry is the pair, a pair of skis and some poles, obviously, and maybe some, maybe some gloves and hand warmers. But, you know, if, if the barrier to entry is very little, um, and to get the excitement up about something that, as you just said, is extremely, there's all, there's only benefits, essentially, there's very, very little negatives. Um, so just being able to kind of couple those things together, get the excitement up and getting more people out to, um, to try it and just get healthier. Cause we all know, I mean, there's health as wealth, right. You know, getting out there and doing everything, as you said, full body, I think that's very, a really good point as well. So I think that that is, um, extremely important and, Heck yeah, man. Let's do it. Congratulations. Let's 2019. Let's get going. Uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, right up in the twin cities. Uh, so let's, uh, let's see how it goes. So that, that's pretty fantastic. So, um, another thing I want to ask you about, and, and well, actually first let's go back. So your first event, there was 125,000 people. That is just absolutely insane. I don't really have a question on that one. I just think that that is wicked for that to be your first event. I mean, if that is, it can only go down from there, right? I guess that's my question. It can only go down. <laughs> Well, it, it doesn't go down because that, that, that just, you can carry that kind of stoke with you through your entire career. And you can, that being in an event like that at the beginning of my career motivated me through the, through, like I, we were talking about earlier, the four and five hour uh, training sessions, the runs and the roller skis and the bikes in the, maybe in the pouring rain at 36 degrees Fahrenheit before the season starts. And you've got to be out there training and it is just completely miserable. But you remember what it felt like to race in front of that many people on a stage that big and motivation becomes not an issue at all. I love it. Yeah. I mean, if, if I was ever in front of that many people, I don't know what I'd do, but it sounds like you used it, you took it, choked on a little fire smoke and kept rolling. So I like that a lot, man. So um, one thing again, I do want to bring up is you um, were the 2012 national champion for the United States, right? Yes, sir. And what is that like? I mean, it was a few years ago now, but what was it like knowing you were literally the best in the country at your sport, something that you dearly 
deeply love. Obviously, you're very passionate about it, as we've been able to hear through your voice and I've been able to see. What is that like knowing that you reached one of your goals at being the best in the country? Yeah, I mean, that it's exactly that. It was what we talked about earlier about the progression where you go from being, you know, junior to national, junior nationals, world juniors, et cetera, et cetera. That's one more step, right? You come up and you say, I want to be, you know, the next step, maybe the year before you were on the podium. And the next step is I want to win this national championship race. And so it's one more step. And it was on the way towards the 2013 World Cup win that I had, which was the first World Cup win since the 80s for the U.S. And so you got to, you know, you win, you become the best in the country before you become the best in the world. And, and that progression, that was just one more stepping stone on that progression. I love it. And I mean, that's, it's just, I think think it's so cool that I get the opportunity to talk to you and listen to you and you are literally the greatest at something in, in the entire country. I mean, there's what, 400 million people here. Clearly you're doing something right, man. And then a year later was when you, when you won your first world cup event. So again, just more progression. Now you're beating people from around the world, around the country. You get on that podium, you're number one. What was that like? Um, obviously I've never been to one of these world cup events, so I don't know what the flag situation is like or the ceremony afterwards, but what was that like? standing at the top next to two people that you probably very much admire knowing that you came out on top that day. Yeah, that was surreal. And that was actually probably one of the moments in my career that kind of came out of order. You know, in general, I talked about it being a fairly linear progression, but that world cup win that I had, it was the opening weekend of the 2013, 14 season. It was the third day of a tour event. And I, it was completely unexpected. It wasn't the next step. I hadn't been on the podium. I had barely been in the top 10 and all of a sudden I had the fastest time that day. And so that was, uh, and honestly, because it came out of order, I would say I got a little bit less out of that than I would have had it come. I wasn't able to build off of that. And I, I didn't, I didn't carry that, those results forward and continue to build in the same way that I had the other, uh, the other successes during my career. And I think because, because it was so unexpected, you know, it, it's kind of, uh, there, people, we talk about in the sports world, um, fluke wins versus, versus intentional wins. And that, that came into the category as a fluke win for me. And I, I did some, some things during my career that I'm very, very proud of. And I am proud of that moment. But that was, it turned out um, really hard for me to reproduce. And so I, I, yeah, I mean, even thinking about it, thinking about the fact that I had the fastest time that day and how out of place that is out of, the, out of my career, which, which had some incredible ups and downs, um, including a, a medal of the under-23 world championships, which I would put at the same level almost as that World Cup win. But that medal at U23s came really in order and was something that I was very ready for and, so, and felt like I, I could do it. And, and it was in contrast to that World Cup win where I, I really was in disbelief and then had trouble bringing, carrying it forward. I don't know if that makes sense, but it, it was an interesting moment in my career that kind of stands apart from the others. Yeah, yeah. No, it, again, you've, you've brought up that progression a lot, and I really like the way that you structure that. And I can understand that, that because, again, looking at the very little bit, I'll be very honest with you, no, I couldn't find too much online about you, unfortunately. Hopefully that'll change in about, I don't know, let's call it 40, no, I'm kidding, 45 minutes or so. But, um, you know, hopefully, like, I did notice that there were no other podiums even, correct? On the World Cup stage, that was the only one, and it happened to be you were first. And I mean, obviously, you're going to take it. You're not going to be angry about it. But, but having something like that occur, was there then, 
added pressure at knowing that, okay, now this is how good I am. And that means I have to live up to this. Or, or was it, did you in time just like, Hey, there's really no reason I should have won. I'm just going to continue on the path that I was on. No, I, I think there's some truth to that. And I probably haven't really articulated this well, even to myself, but I think that there's some truth to the fact that, that, that it, and not necessarily that race, but that season um, in which I had another result that was similar later in the year. And I had a, some really ex, ex, uh, exciting results at the Olympics in Sochi, um, not necessarily on the results page, but in terms of like where I was in the race and being in the race for a long time, especially in the 50K. That, that season set expectations at a new level for what I wanted out of my career and, and what I expected from myself. And I had trouble living up to those in the subsequent years. And so I think there's absolutely some truth to what you said about the fact that, and I think that that's always true about, or at least for my, in my experience, about those fluke wins, uh, fluke results that don't represent where you actually are in your progression that they that they can almost be hindrances in your forward progression because they set the bar at a new level. And mm -hmm. so that's something that I think that maybe with some more time as I get as I get away from my career and look back on it with a bigger with a little more perspective that I'll I'll see that as having been uh, been a, a almost a negative, which is funny to say about one of the highlight results of my career. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's it's unfortunate um, to to kind of think about it like that. Hopefully, when you, the further you get away, you'll look at it like, oh my gosh, I won a podium, I, I won a World Cup event. There's only so many people on planet Earth that can do that, and, and Noah, you were one of them. So I think uh, definitely take it for a positive. I, I think that's a better spin on it, I guess, in, in my marketing perspective. But um, you brought it up already, the 2014 Sochi Games. So you qualified, you attended. Um, not only Sochi, but you went to Pyeongchang recently too. But tell us about the 2014 Games. I mean, again, this is the natural progression of things. You're making it further along your path. How was First, tell us about the actual race, and, and again, going back to your progression, and then I want to talk a little bit about the actual just experience of being there. Yeah, and those two things are hard to, hard to differentiate a little bit in that okay. because I was, honestly, because of that World Cup win at the beginning of the year and because of the, um, because of the really quality, high, really high-level season that I was having, and being only 24 years old, I came in and I, I wanted nothing to do with the hype around the Olympics. All I cared about was skiing fast and about my races. And that, I think it served me really well. And I went in and uh, had, was feeling really, really good during the games. I had some disappointment in a couple of the earlier races, had some trouble getting my, uh, getting my skis going well, and um, just some different things that didn't let the results come together. And then we hit that 50K, which was the final race. The 50K, like the marathon in the summer games, closes out the Olympics, happens on the day of closing ceremonies. Um, it's, the, it's kind of the marquee event, and it certainly was for me. And I went into that race feeling so good and with a plan to be up near the front. I wanted to be in the pack. I, I felt like the course suited me super well. It was one of the hilliest courses I'd ever raced on. And that is right up my strengths, especially growing up in Colorado where you grow up on huge hills. It was exactly what I wanted. And I went in and I executed really, really well. And I was in the lead pack for, or for 48 out of 50 kilometers. And I had an epic explosion in the final two kilometers. And I dropped a minute in in five minutes of racing. And it was, it was, uh, it was 
almost humorous, but it really did not detract from how well the rest of the race had gone for me. And the fact that I was there within striking distance of the finish and I could, I was with the leaders. That was um, really a special moment for me. And that I would say is still uh, stands out as one of the, the most fun races of my career and being in the lead pack of the Olympic games for 48 K was something else. That is absolutely, that is just too cool, man. And I, I think it's, I think it's interesting that you, you took the approach of not caring about the Olympics and kind of just putting it as, hey, well, not, let me rephrase that, not caring about the hype around the Olympics and understanding like your goal is to medal, your goal is to be one of the best in the world. And this is the stage you want to do it on. Um, so I think that that's really interesting that, so, so what exactly did you do to pretty much just wash out all the sound and not, cause you have the media events, right? You have to talk to so many people. You have to do all these things. How were you able to put all that aside and really just specifically focus on the skiing? Yeah, it's a good question. I It almost wasn't representative in how I was physically spending my time so much as what I was thinking about and, I, and what I was focused on. Like you have to go through all the motions, but like when I actually, when I think about my memories from the Sochi games, it is it is the skiing with my coach and the and the preparation for the races with my personal coach in the days leading up to the races, that's what stands out. I don't remember the village life very well. I don't remember the interaction with the media very well. All what I really remember is the work that my coach and I did to prep, to prepare me for those races. Um, and, and how successful that was in allowing me to execute a good race and how exciting it was to be there with him who, you know, this is a coach who had worked with me for years and was super personally invested in me and somebody I was really lucky to work with. And, and it was those interactions that were the highlight for me. So that's where my focus was. Very cool. That makes sense. I like that. I like how you differentiate the physical versus the the mental um, aspect of it and just thinking like, yeah, I'll talk to the media, but I'm not going to give you too much. And then I'm going to go back to worrying about what I need to worry about. So then let's compare that. You then went to the 2018 games. Now I know there was a little bit of time in between, and I'm not trying to to uh, to, to brush that aside. But obviously, we want to talk about the Olympics here. I am sorry about that. Um, so what the the 2018 games? This was only a couple months ago, as of recording. Um, what was that like? And and I guess did you take the same approach to the 2014 to the 2018 games that you did the 2014 games? Yeah. Well, and I, I do need to back up a little bit in that okay. it is impossible for me to compare the two. Olympics without talking about the intervening years okay, um, in that <laughs> I, I I had a lot of trouble in between the 2014 and 2018 games um, the first race of the 2014-15 season so this is just eight seven or eight months after Sochi I fell and broke my ankle in the World Cup event had to fly home missed most of that season came back and had a, a decent year the next year, but it wasn't the level that I wanted to be skiing at. And it wasn't the level that I was skiing at before the missed season. And so I decided after that for the 2016, 17 year that I wanted to, I wanted to train harder than I ever had before. And I wanted to make a huge jump. And so I went, I upped my training by 40% in one season. And I went from training like 680 hours a year to training a thousand hours a year. And that I knew was a huge risk, but I wanted to be best in the world. And it was a risk that I was willing to take. And I knew that it was more than likely that it wasn't going to work. And it didn't work. I spent most of that year being sick and I was injured and overtrained and exhausted. And it was all predictable. And I came really close actually to walking away from the sport 
the year before the 2018 Olympics, but decided to go back and give it another shot and see if I could uh, bring my training load back down and absorb that huge, huge volume of training that I had done. And I, so I went into the 2018 season with high hopes, but not a lot of reason for optimism. And it was better than the year before, but it wasn't wonderful. And I did requalify for the Olympic team, which was amazing. And I tell you what, I've never made a better decision in my life than to stick with the sport and get to go to a second Olympics. Because although I came in not in anywhere near the same place that I was in Sochi, I was not, uh, I was not vying for the podium. I, I knew that great days were going to be top 20s and not podium results at that point. Um, but to be there and to be part of my team, I mentioned a little bit earlier, my two teammates who won a gold medal to be there for that moment, because cross-country skiing may appear to be an individual sport. But like I said, we travel eight months out of the year together, live in hotel rooms. Our teammates success matters almost as much as our own personal success does. And for me to be there to watch my teammates make history was an experience that I will never forget. And honestly, it's the highlight of my career being there for their success. And so sticking around for one more year, and it really made that entire experience that I had gone through, the struggles from 2014 to 2018 worth it. But to answer your original question about comparing the two games, I can't talk about the two games without talking about my different mental place. Um, I came into Korea really with the idea of soaking in the Olympics and taking in that experience, which was exactly opposite of what I told you Sochi was like for me. Uh, and so it was an entirely different experience. I, of course, I was focused on the result and I wanted to ski fast, but I was also enjoying the village life and I was uh, enjoying the media side of things and the attention. I was using my platform to, uh, to try to um, push for, pushed for positive change. I was doing all the different things that, that I didn't do in Sochi. And I was getting to know more of my Team USA teammates and getting to watch a few other events and, um, and then getting to watch my teammates' success. And, and so the, the 2018 games was about team and it was, a, it was a really positive experience for me, whereas the 2014 games was about performance and excellence and it was a really intense experience for me. Mm -hmm. And and both are good in certain situations, right? In the 2014 games, as you said, you were 24, you were vying, you were gunning to be one of the best in the world. And in the 2018 games, a little bit older, a little bit wiser, may I say, and, and understanding where you stood and, and what you could get out of it and what you can do with your platform and how to utilize that. And it sounds like you absolutely did it. And I, I'm glad just by listening to your story, I'm glad that you stuck around for a little while longer. Um, training a thousand hours a year sounds insane if i'm allowed to say that um and uh, you know hey man you had to do what you had to do and clearly you did it but that's just um again i get bored running for 15 minutes without music now we're, we're talking about uh, you know a couple hundred hours that's and that's why you do what you do and that's why i do what i do but anyway um i just think that that is is it's it's great that you were able to stick around i mean not too many people can call themselves two-time olympians in any sport it doesn't matter so you get that um the ability to say that and and whatever that means to someone else it doesn't matter it means with that what it's what it's what it means to you and clearly i can tell it means something and as you said being able to stick around for your teammate success because this is such a team sport when again an outsider like myself i assume it's very individual but it makes sense that if you're hanging out with someone for eight months out of the year, traveling and, and living in the same hotel room, you're going to grow a very big um, relationship with those people and, and do something with it. 
And it's not just the time spent with them. It's also that you're out there training with them. You're out there pushing them. Even the women, although we don't always train together, but we're out there on the course and we're, we're pushing each other. We're learning. Honestly, there were many times when I would go ski behind one of my teammates to try to learn what they were doing for technique because it, my female, it didn't matter if it was female teammate, male teammate. If, they, if I knew they did something well that I wanted to be able to do well as well, well, also I would go and I would chase them around and, uh, and, and try to learn from them. And we would push each other and support each other on race day. And it, it really was a team effort out there. I can't stress that enough. It's not just lip service. It's, it, I would not have had the success that I did. And I know that Keegan and Jesse couldn't have won that gold medal without the, the support of so many people, including an incredible team. And I'm sure that they would relay that message a thousand times. So I love it. So fantastic. Thank you so much for giving us a really good understanding of what it was like going to two Olympics, two very, very different Olympics, especially from your perspective. Um, you know, thank you so much for that. And thank you for all that training you did and all that, uh, you know, you wore the stars and stripes all over the world. So we sincerely, sincerely do appreciate that. So a um, couple more minutes here for me, Noah. Um, one thing I do want to talk about, and you and I spoke about it a little bit, is the monetary aspects. Um, one thing you wanted me to ask you about was the funding and how you were able to fund your career and go about it. And if you need to fund your career, something tells me you're not making millions of dollars, unfortunately. So please just tell us a little bit about, I guess, the, the monetary aspects and, and really what it means to be a, as you put it, quote unquote, almost professional cross-country skier. Yeah, so... The in the skiers, United States, at least, because as yes, you said, no, exactly. in, in Norway, there are football players. So. Yes, no, exactly. They're, and they're, they're getting huge endorsement deals, et cetera. And that, that discrepancy between us fighting for funds and fighting to support ourselves, racing against people who are plastered all over television and, and getting written hundreds of thousand dollars a year in endorsements, et cetera, or more than that. Um, it really is, uh, it's a kind of a David Verth first Goliath type, uh, type situation. But, um, yeah, so I was really lucky that I had a ton of support during my career in which I was, uh, people who helped me make it financially feasible because, um, I was not, uh, I didn't have any personal funds. I mean, I came straight out of high school pursuing this. My parents were not able to financially support my career. And, especially when you're first coming up, nobody, there aren't any sponsors that are sitting there waiting to write young people checks to be able to support them because they want their, you know, to use them in their marketing efforts. You have to prove yourself on the world stage before you, you get to that point. And even then, once you are a, a proven success on the world stage, it's a hard sport to market and it's hard to find those sponsors. And so we rely a lot on organizations, generally nonprofit organizations that, that, fundraise through our behalf and it's it's an avenue a fundraise on our behalf and it's an avenue that we can use to connect with the community that that believes in us and supports us and the thing about the cross country ski community the nordic ski community in this country is that it is it might not be huge but it is so incredibly passionate and we are so lucky to have this group of of skiers in this country who not only enjoy cross-country skiing themselves and many of them be at any age, any fitness level, go out as many times as they possibly can in a winter to be on skis, sometimes multiple times a day because they love it so much. Not only do they want to go ski themselves, but they want to support the best skiers in the world and they want to see Americans stick it to the Norwegians or stick it to the Russians and, and be able to show that, that even if we're not in a sport where cross-country skiing is on television every weekend, we can still compete and be one of the best in the world. And so it, it was really through the support of that community 
um, financial support, paying my travel expenses to the World Cup, paying my travel expenses to training camps, paying for the hotel rooms and the food when I was there, um, that I was able to to sustain myself. And that was really like kind of, uh, you know, it, it was it was a plus or minus zero sum game. So, you know, I'd say I, uh, I you know, I would have anywhere between ten and $20,000 in my bank account on any given time. And I would have to write three and $4,000 tickets uh, for, for flights for the winter, et cetera. And, and so I was always counting, counting dollars to make sure I can have enough money. And um, you, you learn how to, um, how to express your needs and also being, you know, show your incredible gratitude, but also give back in a way that makes the supporters feel like they're getting value and that, that you're somebody worth support. We're supporting um, beyond just the number that you are on the result sheet. And so, uh, it, yeah, it is, not just my career, but every cross-country ski career in this country is thanks to the incredible community that believes in U.S. cross-country skiing. And so I, I can't stress how enough how impactful that has been on my life, that support, allowing me to, to compete at the world level, allowing me to go to two Olympics, but also teaching me what generosity and support looks like and how you can make a huge difference in somebody's life. Um, not just, you know, by giving financially, but by supporting in kind. I lived with a host family for, for seven years. Uh, and they, they put me up and, uh, and fed me when I was training in, uh, in Utah at the U S ski team training site. And so, uh, I, it's people like that, um, whose generosity I will try to emulate for the rest of my life and who, uh, allowed me to be, uh, to be where I am today. Pay it forward. That's the first thing. hundred percent. I always love that. And that's just, it, it's incredible. As you said, the, the, the community may be small, but they're extremely passionate. Um, so it's, it's, it's so great to see people who love something so much. They're willing to put up their dollars to see you do well and to see the rest of the team do well. And because they just love the sport and they love you so much. And I, I really, really like the sound of that, you know, shout out to every one of them. I'm sure there's way too many to name and we only have a couple minutes left. So just know if you helped Noah out in any way, shape or form or anyone on the U.S. cross-country skiing, the, the appreciation is through the roof. Clearly we can hear that through your voice and, and it's ex- extremely, extremely appreciated. So thank you from my heart as well. We appreciate that um, because we get to people like Noah who then goes to two Olympic games and crushes it for us and he gets to wear um, and represent us. And this is the kind of person that I love having represent the United States on a daily basis. So one last thing, you told me at the beginning of this, and as I said, you are hard to find stuff on on the internet, man. And it turns out Noah is retiring. Is retiring the right word to use, I guess, or from competition? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it tells me you can never stop skiing, right? But the competition aspect of it might be over for him. And as I said, he's currently attending Brown University. When he told me that, it was a very, very casual, oh, yeah, I'm attending Brown University. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's somewhere in Rhode Island, not a big deal. Um, so, Noah, if you don't mind telling us a little bit about, I guess, your life after your career, after your career, because it sounds like this wasn't a career that you made a ton ton of money in, but you made friends, family, amazing support. You have a community behind you now, but now you kind of have to go out and make sure you can eat every day. Um, So tell us about what your career after your career is going to be. Yeah, well, it's starting with with this education. And so I am, I did not, as I mentioned, I went straight into skiing from high school. I did not pursue any academics uh, beyond high school. And, And I always knew that I wanted to come back and go to school but I didn't want to do that until I was ready to focus on it and devote my time and energy to it in the way that it deserves. And that time has arrived now. And I am so lucky and grateful to be able to do that here at Brown. And 
one of the, I, and I'd be, you know, I t since we're talking about finances, I'd be remiss to say that, uh, that I would be here, I, I would not be here without the financial support of Brown and the financial aid that they're able to provide. And, and the huge reason for that is that I'm, uh, you know, I didn't make a lot of money during my career. And so I have a, a, a small budget to be able to put towards my education and they're able to fill the difference. And that's one of the many, many values of being at a high level institution like this with, with financial support available. And so this is, uh, it's honestly very similar to skiing in a lot of ways in that uh, you, you got to figure out how to make the finances work while pursuing excellence and pursuing your, your dreams and your passions. And I don't know what comes after school, but because I'm at the very beginning, that's going to be four years away and it's going to give me some time to figure out what I want to do. And um, I can explore so many different options here at school. And this is been and I'm only a month and a half into school but this is going to be the perfect it, I, I'm so glad to be here this seems like the perfect place for me to make this transition and and the perfect environment for me to to figure out what the rest of my life is going to hold but I will mention that I am absolutely going to stay involved in the sports world as well um, and I am currently doing that uh, by doing a little bit of work with the U.S. anti-doping agency and this is something that uh, anti-doping is an area that I'm super passionate about. It, it directly affected my career. Um, it is no secret that cross-country skiing has had its fair share of issues with doping and is something that is a definitely a black mark on skiing as a whole and on the Olympic movement and something that, that really devalues what you what you see and experience when you follow and you and you draw inspiration from olympic athletes and so uh, cleaning up sport and making sure that sport is uh is competed in with integrity is something that i really want to focus on and i'm so grateful to have the opportunity to do that by working with the u.s anti-doping agency to doing education and doing some uh marketing for them and it is an area that, uh, yeah. So I'm not only am I pursuing my school, but I'm also staying connected in sport through a through a different vehicle than say coaching or physiology or or maybe the more traditional paths. I love it. You got to You got to stay connected in some way, shape, or form. And it's almost kind of nice to uh, take a step back, uh, specifically from the sport. I mean, you've been spending. 11 since you were 11 so I, I don't know how many years that is 18 20 years of the two decades in the sport and uh, you know taking a step taking a breather um you know might, might help a little bit i'm sure have you uh checked out where the closest trail is yet <laughs> uh, absolutely yeah there's a there's a, actually one of the one of the most popular ski sites of the country is in uh the weston ski track outside of boston about 45 minutes from where i am so i will definitely be hitting it up this uh, look at this that how did I know? Awesome. Well, Noah, thank you so much. I sincerely, sincerely appreciate all the time you've been putting up into this point, your time today and uh, in the future, just working and helping out um, the community even more. So one more time, Noah Hoffman, USA cross-country cross skiing, two-time Olympian, um, currently retired Brown University freshman. Most popular freshman is the one that's 29. I can guarantee that one. So Noah, thank you so much. One more time. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Our Athletes. I hope you guys enjoyed it. This one with Noah Hoffman, super cool dude. As I said, he had a lot to say and really dove into what it was like being at the Olympics, comparing and contrasting, and really just letting us understand kind of what he has to put himself through with training and the amount of hours and everything that he has to do to go through it and the wear and tear on your body along the way. So it was a lot of fun talking to Noah. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Please, please follow him across all his socials. They will be in the show notes.
Please follow us as well at ourathletes.us on Instagram. Check out the website, www.ourathletes.us. Send me emails if you have any feedback or anything you would like me to talk about. Michael at ourathletes.us. And uh, yeah, please rate, comment, review, subscribe, share, like, whatever you have to do to let um, some of your friends know a little bit more about our athletes and what they go through on a daily basis. So thank you so much for listening. Sincerely hope you enjoyed it and I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you.